You are now listening to the London International Christian Church Podcast. Good morning, family. We're going to talk about a movement that's going to change eternity. But before we do, I think uh, all of us that have traveled here, that are visiting, owe a huge debt of gratitude to Michael, Michelle, and the great London Church. Thank you, thank you, thank you for hosting this incredible, incredible missions conference. I was very moved by the Mercy presentation by Jamie. Congratulations being the new Mercy director. And congrats to all the CR graduates. What a moment. What a moment we got to see right there. I think at this time, the scripture that the Lord's put upon my heart is Psalm 126. It says, when the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men and women who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said amongst the nations, The Lord has done great things for us, and today we are filled with joy. And the church said, This is one of the Psalms of the Ascent. It's talking about the remnant that was in Babylon, going back to Zion, going back to Jerusalem. A dream fulfilled. And in so many ways, that is us. The seed of every movement of God throughout Scripture starts with a remnant. And the Bible defines remnant in Isaiah 10 as being few and weak. And yet, that's what God does. He takes the few and the weak because they are the ones that understand, I must depend on God. And he took those few in the week from Babylon, and he took them back to Zion. Of course, our Zion today is heaven. And the few in the week have begun to gather throughout the nations, and so we too can say, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. And the church said, you know, Elena and I so enjoy the role that we have, not only as a a mother and father in the faith, but now a grandpa and grandma in the faith. And it's exciting to to go from church to church. We started this year by going to Manila because it was such a hurting congregation. In the previous four months, 75 had fallen away, and we wanted to go back and rebuild the foundation. Sadly, the lead couple there, the Bethalmios, had fallen into great sin and had to be taken out of the ministry. Later, they fell away. And so this, this, this hurting congregation was able to be ministered to by a young, dynamic couple, Richie and Elizabeth McDonald's, and the rebuilding of the foundation began. Following that, I went to Stockholm. And once more, I mean, Satan had struck. You know, whenever the Lord is forcefully advancing, expect Satan to strike. We had to disfellowship the former leaders in the Stockholm church. Praise God for the partnership of the Sorotkins and the Williamsons that came there, solidified the Stockholm church. Thank God for the Tambars who who stood on up for the Lord, and we did not lose a single disciple. They all stood firm. 
Then it was on to Sao Paulo, Brazil, to be with our beloved uh, son and daughter there, Raul and Linda. But I, we, we took the World Sector Leaders because we wanted them to see their campus ministry. This is the model campus ministry for the movement. And then we got to participate in the South American Missions Conference. What, what a time we had. Following that, we went to Mexico City for the Latin American Missions Conference to see the model teen ministry, where now they have 30 fired up disciples in the teen ministry. Following that, the Lord took us to San Francisco. Elena did a women's day and of course, I may be a bit prejudiced, but I, I, I thought she did one of the best speeches of all time. And uh, then I had the opportunity to speak on Sunday to a combined San Francisco and Sacramento church. And it had always been the dream to fill up this high school auditorium that we meet at. It was full to the brim. <laughs> and truly, the Bible is true. Our tongues were filled with songs of joy. Then, then one of the, the highlights of my year... The Holy Spirit took us to Hilo, Hawaii, because that's where Kyle had gone back to. And for four days, we studied out the scriptures. And on Easter Sunday, Kyle Bartholomew was restored to the Lord. <laughs> then we had the opportunity literally the next week to go to Manila and to share this good news with the Manila church. And, and the, the church was so forgiving, so merciful. They were so fired up that our brother was back. Then we went to Hong Kong, where we had the opportunity to, to study with Rhea Lee. She's an actress, a model, a singer, and at that point, a sorcerer. And we studied out the scriptures. We laid it out about there's only two sources of power, God and Satan. The next day, she was baptized into Christ. Then the Holy Spirit took me to Chennai, India for the South Asia Missions Conference uh, to be with our beloved uh, son and daughter, Raja and Debs, to be with uh, Luke and Brandon. We love them so much. And, of course, the highlight there was the sending out of the Delhi mission team, the Spartans, the 38 Spartans. And, of course, now it's, it's amazing. It's just the first six months of the work. God has blessed them with 96 additions, 73 baptisms, 22 restorations, and one place membership. We now have 134 disciples in New Delhi, India. <laughs> On my way back home, I had to stop off in Paris and to see my uh, grandchildren in the faith, the Olmoses. And uh, praise God, our church in Paris is a registered church at this time. And Lord willing, they're going to be getting their visas to be able to work there. And praise God for the Totos who have held down the fort in a great and tremendous way. Then, of course, uh, we stopped by Dallas. And I had to see two of my three granddaughters right there. And, of course, preach the church and be with the Sears. Afterwards, I got to go to Moscow to be at the Eurasian Missions Conference. Of course, again, to be at Sorotkins. And, and then, of course, to see the, the embryonic teen sector of that church. And one of the highlights, though, certainly for the Sorotkins, was the fact that their daughter, Sophia, started dating one of the brothers from Sao Paulo, Luca DiBio. And the amazing thing is, not only do they have a chemistry, but they have a dream. 
And their dream is to come back to London this next summer to train in the ministry in this great church and then to be sent by the Holy Spirit to plant the church in Rome, Italy. Following this, at the end of May, we were back in Los Angeles. I got to speak at the 11th anniversary. Two weeks later, they had a record Bring Your Neighbor Day of 2,105. Then it was on to Lagos, Nigeria, to be at the Smellies. I mean, we had seven baptisms over the weekend. The church there is now 130 disciples. Of course, we sent out the Kinsasha um, group that was going to reconstruct it, and now we have 303 disciples in Kinsasha, Democratic Republic of Congo. Then it was on to Dubai. We got a chance to be there for the leadership exchange between the Bakers and Miguel and Megan. And uh, certainly the Lord is e even, even greater things are happening in Dubai. Then it was back to Manila because one, it, it, it takes a lot. When, when your lead couple fall, you've got to go back, not only rebuild the foundation, now you've got to rebuild the church. And we went back, and it was beautiful to begin to see all that was happening. And as of today, there have now been, in the Manila Church this year, 92 baptisms. And they've gone from 187 disciples to 260 sold-out, solid disciples in Jesus. <laughs> Following that, I went to Honolulu to try to strengthen the church there. And then it was back to Los Angeles for the great GLC where God gave us on Sunday 21 baptisms and attendance of 2,700. Following this, in September, we were able to go to the inaugural service for Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Amazing, we had 178 in attendance. Marvel Holder, our brother, had 35 visitors out. <laughs> then, as you saw the incredible vi video, we went to Phnom Penh to sign uh, what's known as the Memorandum of Understanding with the Chim Mercy Orphanage and the 58 children. And we have a dream in the next five years to bring the 58 up to 200 orphans there in the orphanage. <laughs> Amazing to think that the Bordieres in their late 50s have left the comfort of America to go to the third world to minister to orphans. Now those are sold out disciples of Jesus Christ. Then I felt the need uh, to be in Orlando to be with my mom on her birthday, September 30th, because my father had passed away last November, and he would have been 90 this year. But it was great. My mom has a, a great spirit. She's such an incredible person, such an upward call for me. And uh, the highlight of the day, of course, was taking her to church. And the Klopex, I, I didn't know they were doing this. We walk to the church building. And here is Sonia with this giant bouquet of roses for mom. Of course, mom, she's just blown away. Then in the middle of the service, they bring out this huge cake. And they, they didn't have 90 candles on it, but they had a nine and a zero. And, and mom got to blow it out. I mean, it was enough cake for the whole church. But mom was just so touched by the love of the disciples. Then Elaine and I took off the next weekend for Columbus, Ohio, to see the planting of the 19th Operation Eagle Church, where we had 146 in attendance. And now we're in London, England, on Mercy Day, and we're beginning to see the day of even greater things are happening right now. Are you with me, church?
Tomorrow afternoon, we'll be leaving for Sydney, Australia for the first Austral-China Missions Conference and the send-off of the Auckland, New Zealand mission team. Yes, the hobbits are going to be evangelized. The title that I've been given is A Greater Movement. And I'm going to try to present to you the history of the mainline churches of Christ, the international churches of Christ, and the international Christian churches, the sold-out movement. I do think it's very important that we have a numeric perspective. You can get too hung up on numbers, but on the other hand, God has a whole book on numbers. So in Mark 6, it could have read at the feeding of the 5,000 that Jesus was with his disciples. They had a big crowd that day. The crowd was hungry. Jesus worked a miracle, and everybody went home full. But the Bible says, Jesus asked a question to them because they said, the people are hungry. And he says, you give them something to eat. And the disciples respond, well, it would take eight months' wages to do that. Well, what do you have? We have five loaves and two fish. Well, Jesus says, set the people in groups of 50 and 100. Jesus blesses the five loaves and two fish, feeds 5,000 men, and they were all satisfied, amen? amen? And then there were 12 basketful of leftovers. Numbers quantify the magnitude of the miracle. If the Bible uses numbers to do that, then we need to use numbers to do that. Are you with me right here? From 1979 to 2001, Elaine and I were blessed to lead what became known as the Boston Movement and later in 1994, the International Churches of Christ. I do think it's important that we have a perspective of what was going on in 1979 when we arrived in Lexington and soon to be the Boston Church of Christ. At that time, in 1979, the mainline Church of Christ in America averaged 150 members and they had but eight baptisms a year Six of them were children of the members. 90% fell away. Their largest church in all the world was in America at 3,000 members in Tennessee. And most of their churches were in what we call the Bible Belt. Outside the United States, their largest church was only 500. According to their own magazine at this point called the Christian Chronicle, the churches of Christ continue to lose membership to this day. They are no longer a movement because there is no geographic or numeric expansion. In 1979, Elena and I were invited to lead the Lexington Church of Christ, later known as the Boston Church of Christ. And we arrived on Friday night, June 1st, 1979. And that night at the devotional, we gathered what was called the 30 would-be disciples. And we gathered there in one of the key couples, the Gimple's living room. Well, interestingly enough, that church had only had two baptisms in the previous three years. And yet God worked through the scriptures, through the Holy Spirit, through discipling. And those 30 disciples in one church in one nation, by the year 2001, when Elena and I were put on sabbatical, had multiplied into 392 churches 
in 171 nations with 135,000 disciples. Our largest church in America was 10,000 disciples in Los Angeles. Our largest church outside of America was in Manila at 6,000 disciples. And bottom line, we had 40 churches around the world with over 1,000 disciples. Half of them, 20 of them, were outside the United States, and 20 of them were inside the United States. That is why we were called the International Churches of Christ. Sadly, there's been a great demise in what was called the International Churches of Christ. One of their own preachers in 2016, Gordon Ferguson, who is an opponent of God's movement, wrote this in his book entitled Three Movements. He said, at the end of 2015, the ICOC had 667 congregations overall, 381 of which baptized between 1 and 10 people per year, and 122 had zero baptisms. Thus, in our 667 churches, 503, 75%, baptized between 0 and 10 in a year. Let me just state the obvious. With 75% baptizing only 0 to 10 in a year, things are not close to going well. That's one of their own. And yet at one time, it was said, there is nothing like the international churches of Christ in all recorded history. But now in 2018, we look at literally all of these 667 churches and we see a landscape of destruction and lukewarmness. And here we are, a relatively small movement, and yet the title of the lesson is A Greater Movement. And I believe that is what God is doing now. I think most of us have a deep conviction that there's a Bible parallel for everything and at every point in your life. What sometimes we miss is that there's a Bible parallel for every moment and every point in God's movement's life. And so today, the most parallel scriptures are going to be found in 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Haggai. Our first point is simply, God scatters and God gathers. Now, for the ICSM students in the house, you already know these dates. In 1010 BC, David becomes the king of Judah. In 1003 BC, David becomes king over united Israel and Judah. In 970 BC, Solomon becomes king. In 930 BC, the kingdom divides. The north, led by Jeroboam, is called Israel. The south, led by Rehoboam, is called Judah. Sadly, in 722 BC, Israel, the northern kingdom, is sent into exile by God through the Assyrians. As time passes, Judah as well is exiled. Now, very interestingly, it's not just a one-time happening. Three times, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, comes against Jerusalem. The first is 606 BC. This is when he takes Daniel. The second time he comes is 597 BC. This is very important because this is when he takes Jehoiachin through the line of the Messiah comes, as well as Ezekiel. And then in 586 BC is the, the most well-known of it, 
That's when there's a total destruction of Jerusalem, including the temple is destroyed. And so now I want us to go to a scripture that happens in 586 B.C. in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. It's recorded in verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord was roused against his people, and there was no remedy. This is huge. It needs to be circled. God is a patient and loving God. He sends his prophets to help his people over and over again. But there comes a point in time when there is no remedy. So what happens when there's no remedy? Read on. God brought up against them the king of the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary, spared neither young man nor young woman, old man nor age. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasure of the Lord's temple, and the treasure of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword. And they became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The first question has to come. Why was the temple of God destroyed? Well, very simply, God had to show that he was no longer with his people. And the people glorified in that monument called the temple, thinking that the Lord was with them. And some have wondered, well, who really destroyed the temple? Was it a man? Well, yes, Nebuchadnezzar and his armies came against it. But that doesn't tell the whole story. Was it Satan? Oh, surely. I mean, he's behind every cruel act that there is. But the Bible clearly says right here in verse 17 is that God handed them over to Nebuchadnezzar. It was God who destroyed the temple. He was making it emphatic to the Jewish people, I am no longer with you. And a small remnant then is taken into Babylon. I'm often asked the question, why a new movement? Why did you start a new movement? Well, first of all, I didn't start it. Some people say, well, it's in Kip's movement. No, it's not my movement. It's God's movement. I believe with all of my heart that God destroyed what we know as the ICOC because there was no remedy. And he started a new movement. Let's go over to Nehemiah chapter 1. Very interestingly, this passage of Scripture takes place actually 50 years after the temple is rebuilt in 516 B.C. That's really the horror of it. 
We find that Nehemiah's brother comes back and says, wow, the people of God, they're, they're in terrible trouble and great disgrace. And when, when Nehemiah heard this report, he just wept and cried, fasted and prayed. You know, I think for some of us, we, we, we look at the ICOC and what's left of it, and there's a disdain. There's a lack of appreciation that that remnant birthed you. Instead of being like Nehemiah going, weeping, fasting, and praying. And then in the middle of his prayer, he says in verse 8, Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you amongst the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if you're exiled people at the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. In this scripture, Nehemiah confesses his sin and the sins of all the Israelites. And for many years, I thought that he was just being magnanimous. But that's not the case. See, in this scripture, it teaches a very vital principle. When the people of God are unfaithful, he scatters them. Even at the smallest unit, which is a marriage. When someone is unfaithful, it's scattered. There's a divorce. However, when people turn to God, no matter where they're at, at the furthest horizon, God brings them back to the place of his name. Well, the place of his name now is not Jerusalem. The place of his name now is God's church. And we need to understand that Nehemiah, since he was in Babylon, he understood, oh my goodness, I didn't get it. I'm one of the unfaithful. I've got to get back to the place of the name. I think for all of us as we read this scripture, no one would dispute the fact that the ICOC was scattered. What people don't see is they want to blame it on humans. And yes, humans were involved. Yes, Satan was involved. But we need to understand once more, it ultimately was God because there was no remedy. We now understand from this scripture, it's God that scatters and God that gathers. You know, in 2000, we celebrated the completion of what was known as the Evangelization Proclamation that I wrote in 1994. In 1994, we were in 53 nations. And I set out before the movement that we needed to get into all the nations with a city that had a population of 100,000 or more. Literally, just six years later, in the year 2000, we were in 171 nations, and the job got done. No sooner do we celebrate that in November 2000 than in January 2001, I received a call from my daughter. She was distraught. She says, Daddy, I'm so depressed. I've even been suicidal. I'm just feeling so much pressure. And it just took me aback, took Elena aback. We were just knocked off our balance. And, but we immediately flew out to where she was at in Boston. And we got with her, we tried to minister to her. And at the time, I didn't really understand. But four months later in April, Olivia fell away. 
And I think we need to understand biblically that anybody that falls away is 100% responsible for their falling away. Um, yes, but we also need to understand in Luke 17 that if someone hurts one of the little ones, woe to them because they'll have a millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the sea. At the time, I did not understand there was a lot going on behind the scenes, and Olivia was being used. It was also quoted to Elena and myself, Proverbs 22.6, raise up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he'll not depart from it. But sometimes when they quoted it to us, they would say, raise up a child in the way he should go, and he will not depart from it, implying that Wow, you didn't raise your child in the Lord. And yet the scripture says, when he's old, he's not going to depart from it. Implying as well that they may be unfaithful at some point in their lives, but then come back to the Lord. Well, all three of our children were baptized. But our leadership was greatly questioned. Some genuinely wanted us to have healing and help. And they said, hey, Kip and Leah, why don't you go on sabbatical and help out your your family, and I really appreciate that. But others said, well, why don't you go on sabbatical? But their purpose was much different. Their purpose was to remove me from any influence. So we went on sabbatical on September 1, 2001. That was the last time I ever made a decision for the ICOC. Three weeks later, there was a meeting of what we called the Kingdom Teachers, led by one of the world's sector leaders, Andy Fleming, and they met for one purpose, to take the ICOC back to mainline church theology. All of them were former mainline Church of Christ people, and they had thought that I had driven a wedge unnecessarily between the mainline Church of Christ and the International Churches of Christ. We need to understand that many of them had family, and so sentimentality guided many of these men into what they considered a noble decision. When I was put on sabbatical, the phone stopped ringing, people stopped coming by. I, I just became very sad, very depressed. I, I was mad, I was bitter. Later on, I, I came to understand that I had the sin of acedia. And literally, it became hard even to go to church. Church on Sunday, oh, it was hard, midweek, now, Elena was, was great. She was always going, Hon, let's go out and get with this couple. No, babe, I, I don't want to go. No, no, no. Hon, why don't we jump in on this study? No, no babe, I, I just don't feel like it. No. And I wish I could say that a week later, I snapped to it and got strong. Sadly, it was a year later. I wallowed in self-pity, bitterness, anger, and acedia. And one day in my quiet time, I read Hebrews 12, 7. Endure all hardship as discipline from God. That scripture changed my life because it changed my perspective. My perspective was, this guy did me wrong. This woman was talking against us. This person is to blame for so much of the negative that was happening. And I knew this was the hardest time ever in my life. And then when I read in the scripture, endure all hardship is discipline from God, I go, oh my goodness. 
This hardship is either orchestrated by God or allowed by God. And when you go through hardship, God has a purpose. It's a discipline. He's expecting you to learn something. Well, as I read down to the passage, I came to verse 15 that talked about the fact that, hey, watch out, or there could be a bitter root to grow up and cause trouble and defile many, and you would lose the grace of God. So I came to understand that when any of us as disciples comes against a hardship, we can't be humanistic, man-focused. We've got to understand that that hardship is either directly caused by God or allowed by God, and we have a choice. We have a choice, either to become a bitter Christian or a better Christian. Well, I then had to ask myself, what was God trying to teach me? Well, the first one seemed so simple, and yet it was, it was so hard to understand. I, I had actually begun to meld the movement and God together in my mind. And so when the movement crashed, my faith in God crashed because I couldn't see God. I had to understand, I had to undo God from the movement. And I came to remember that God is super awesome, incredible, full of love and mercy. And the movement, well, that's just full of a bunch of guys like Raja and Oleg, you know, and myself. <laughs> Secondly, here I was at 48 years old, and I was depressed as a disciple. When I became a Christian, I became a Christian at 17 years old as a freshman in college, and I was like so fired up. I came from a denominational background, and when I understood you had to repent and get baptized, that's how you became a true Christian. You got all your sins forgiven and the gift of the Holy Spirit. I was like so fired up. My big cost, I remember sitting down, on Monday night, and the Bible talk leader was the preacher, Chuck Lucas. And he says, Kip, what is going to be the biggest thing you have to give up or the hardest thing you're going to have to do as a Christian? Didn't take me long. I said, the toughest thing for me is to share my faith with the other guys in this fraternity. Well, I was baptized after midnight at 1.30 in the morning, April 11th, 1972, and the very next day, I'm eating lunch at the fraternity house, and I, I had a plan on how I was going to share with all my fraternity brothers. I was going to kind of go the slow and easy route, you know? <laughs> but one of the guys comes up, his name is Terry, and I thought he kind of shouted through the whole auditorium. He goes, Kip, I heard you got baptized last night. I go, Terry. <laughs> And then he goes, I, I, I want to know all about it. I want to know all about it. Two weeks later, here's my first baptism. A week after that, I baptized another one of my fraternity brothers. And two weeks after that, I baptized another fraternity brother. I'm not saying that to build myself up. I'm just trying to show you I was very excited to be a disciple of Jesus. And yet, here I was, 48 years old, having seen incredible miracles and totally depressed. And then I came to understand what had happened. 
I had shifted my identity from being a son of God, saved, a disciple, to being a leader. That was my primary identity. When my leadership got taken away, then I was sad because that's who I was. And so I had to repent and return to my first love. Thirdly, I would never have said at the time, but then when I look back, mm, I allowed people to idolize me. I would never say, hey, idolize me. But I allowed it. And you know what God does to idols? Yeah. First Samuel 5, he smashes them. And God smashed me. <laughs> Lastly, there was a lesson that I learned as a young Christian. You know, sometimes you have those memories where you heard a lesson many, many, many years ago. And then you go, oh, I remember. And I heard a lesson entitled, The Laban Principle. Now, we all remember Laban. Laban is Rebecca's brother. And it's where Rebecca's son fled to. That was Jacob. Well, now Jacob, his name even means deceiver. But as God would have it, he has Jacob be there with Laban. And Laban turns out to be a bigger deceiver than Jacob. He's there for 20 years. You know, after 20 years, he totally changes. As a matter of fact, he wrestles with God, and God gives him a new name, Israel. He who overcomes with God and man. In my own mind, as I reflected back on my leadership, I saw that I was not very merciful and kind and empathetic to weak Christians. And so what did God do? He made me weak. He placed me under people who, at least in my perspective, were even more merciless than me. And I said, okay, God, I got it. I'm never going to be unmerciful. I'm, I'm going to be full of mercy to every weak Christian forever and ever. Amen. And you know how the scriptures begin not only to convict you but to heal you. A short time after that, I read Acts 13, 36. And it says, after David had served God's purpose in that generation, he fell asleep. In other words, he died when God was done with him. Well, I checked myself out that morning, and I was still there. And I go, God is not done with me. He's, he still wants to use me on all these things. Well, shortly after this time, in 2002, comes what is known as the Long Beach Unity Meeting where the top ICOC leaders from around the world come together and formally renounce them being the International Church of Christ and become and embrace mainline Church of Christ theology. Sadly, one of the outcomes of this was the fact that there was no longer a central leadership. World sexual leaders were called unbiblical. And all the churches were allowed to become autonomous. One of the brothers, a friend of mine to this day, Mark Templer, he comes back to London, and he announces to his staff, he says, guys, I've just got some fantastic news for you. Kim McKean is never going to tell us what to do. Our world state leader, Doug Arthur, is never going to tell We are autonomous now. And then almost as an aside, he goes, 
Well, I, I guess that means I can never be fired. Three weeks later, he's fired. <laughs> Why? Because the Britishers said, hey, I don't want an American leading me. We're autonomous. We rule ourselves. And many missionaries were pushed out and came back to America where with the lack of confidence, they had to get out of the ministry. In 2003 came what's known as the Crete letter, which was full of half-truths and lies. It talked about evil amongst the leadership, talks about money being misused, and then called for a tearing down of the movement. And a lot of disciples read it, and they were wondering, well, isn't anybody going to stand up and say something? Nobody had told them there was no longer a central leadership, that every church was on its own. And so there was a deafening silence. And in the months of March 2003 and April 2003, literally, not hundreds, but thousands of thousands leave the ICOC, many of them to fall away, many of them going to denominational churches thinking, well, I can find what we have in another place. Well, the thought had been that I could not step back and be under other people's leadership. And I thought to myself, I said, hey, it's been a year and a half. I've stepped back. I've been under other people's leadership. And yet no one's speaking up. And so I called a meeting with what still was the most influential church, the L.A. Church, and their leaders. It was interesting that when we had the meeting, only the men showed up because, once more, the women were put out of leadership for the most part. I called up Bob and Pat Gimple from Philadelphia to come and witness the meeting because I had a hunch this was not going to go down well. <laughs> Elena was there as well. And I said, brothers, you know, I'm not going to go into the fact that we now have a doctrinal difference. I'm not going to go into the fact that I believe that we need to be a Bible church. Um, I believe with all of my heart that we can do anything we want to do as long as it doesn't contradict Scripture. I believe that discipling is a command of God, not optional. I believe that there needs to be a central leader with a central leadership. And I still believe in the dream, which I believe is the command of God, to go to all nations, the evangelization of the nations in this generation. I said, I'm not, I don't want to talk about that. What I want to talk about is your deceit. You have not told any of the members about the change of your convictions. And they are confused. As a matter of fact, some of you are heading down to Abilene right now to have a meeting with the leaders of the mainline Church of Christ down there to, quote, make up and re-come together. I said, that is going to so confuse people. Well, I was right. At the end of the meeting, I was fired. Elena's weeping. Pat's crying. <laughs> and there were no hugs that were given. Um, I still had a conviction at this point that, that God was with us. And I set about writing at that point, Revolution to Restoration 3. I wanted to document things that we did right, things that we did wrong. And then in the middle of June, I get a call seemingly out of nowhere by a guy named Nick Bordieri in Portland, Oregon. He's a two-year-old Christian at this point. And he was 
trying to be tactful. And he says, hey, uh, Kip, uh, this is uh, Nick Bordier in Portland. You don't know me, but um, we hear that you don't have a job right now. <laughs> Say, I'm listening. He says, you know, things are going terrible down here in Portland, but, you know, as the San Francisco church has rebelled against uh, L.A., the Portland church has rebelled against uh, San Francisco, and so we're autonomous, and we're on our own, and we, we thought maybe you would like to come and be with us. Two days later, Lynn and I are in Portland, Oregon. And I knew... I knew that very first night when we sat across from Michael and Michelle and three other couples that God was calling us there. We officially were hired July 11th. And it was incredible. Uh, the, the church there was just in total disarray. It had been 300 members in January. At my first midweek, I had a big question one of the brothers that helped me set up the chairs, a guy named Guy Hobbs. And uh, I go, guy, how many chairs do you think we should set up tonight for midweek? 20 or 25? He thought about it a second. He says, bro, I think we need to have faith. Let's go 25. I said, amen, bro. We set 25 up. That was the first midweek. That's where we started. A month later, we had an evening of atonement where I had all the brothers and sisters confess their sins that they had done to the Lord and to one another. And after that time of repentance, amazingly, the baptism started to come. And everybody knew that it was God blessing our repentance. Then, by January 1, we had gotten several members back and several baptisms. We numbered 120 disciples. And we started to dream. I remember announcing to the Bible Talk leaders, hey, we're going to have a World Missions Jubilee in Portland this summer. I was very fired up. They all laughed. <laughs> but what began to happen is that people from 26 different states in America sold their homes, gave up their jobs, and moved to Portland, Oregon. You say, I don't even know who Portland, Oregon is. Elena was the same way. She thought it was right by Canada, right there. I go, no, babe, it's not about Canada. And, 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 and what is that statement making? Well, the statement is making, they're willing to drive 500, 1,000, 3,000 miles across America, traveling by thousands of churches, hundreds of formerly ICOC churches. Right. Why come to Portland, Oregon? Because they believed it was the last bastillion of hope for a lost world, where discipling was still a command of God and the dream of the evangelization of the nation still lived on. In the three years that we were there, the Lord blessed us, and we became the fastest-growing ICOC church in the world. A lot because of baptisms, but a lot because the brothers and sisters were gathered by God. Remember, God scatters, but God gathers. Even if you're at the furthest horizon, if you have a heart for God, he's going to make sure you hook up with the rest of his people. Our second point, God proves and God moves. Let's get back to 2 Chronicles. 
Remember, the people of God are exiled to Babylon. And it says this in verse 21 of chapter 36. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rest. All the time of its desolation, it rested. Until the 70 years that were completed were in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem and Judah. Any one of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with them. Let him go up and rebuild. Now, right here, it's pretty amazing because we find that this text is exactly the same text that we find in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. It should be the next page on over for you. So chapter 1, verse 1 of Ezra reads, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and put it into writing. Then in verse 5 it says, Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Well, we understand that these scriptures are the same. Why? It's the same writer. It's Ezra. So he could borrow his own stuff. And right here, Ezra makes it clear that the coming of Cyrus and Cyrus's proclamation was in fulfillment of the 70-year prophecy of Jeremiah. And you well know that Cyrus came to power in 536 B.C. And you're saying, how can it be 70 years? I mean, the temple was destroyed in 586. That's true. But the first exiling was in 606 B.C., exactly 70 years before the Lord raises up Cyrus to get the Jews to go back to Zion. Let me tell you something. God proves every prophecy comes true. Are you with me here, church? Secondly, we see right here that the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus. That's why we have to pray for all the presidents and all the leaders of different nations. God doesn't just move disciples. He moves the hearts of all men, particularly the hearts of kings, those in authority. So God moves Cyrus to make this proclamation. Then the Bible says in verse 5, chapter 1, is that he moved the hearts of the willing remnant to want to go back to Zion and rebuild. Now, sadly, there were a lot of the remnant that didn't go back. They got comfortable in Babylon. And they just didn't want to go back to Zion. You know, this is very obvious that if God moves his people, it is a movement of God. It's not a movement of men. This is a movement of God. This going back to Zion. This rebuilding. And I think that sometimes we get so focused on leaders that we we don't see God. God moves leaders. Even evil, wicked leaders like Osiris. Like a Nebuchadnezzar. He moves them. He works through them. And we need to understand 
that God has been moving through the centuries. Of course, the most famous movement that we look back upon is our brothers and sisters in the first century called the way. Christians, disciples. And we find that this is a very pure movement until the late 70s, 80s, and then false doctrines start coming into the church. The last apostle John dies in 100 AD. In the second century, great departures begin to happen. And so we can look back at that movement, as well as the other movements in the Bible, as well as even humanistic movements, and we understand a principle. God chooses a man. He has a message. That produces a movement. There's a building. There's a maintenance. And then there's death. There's only a monument. That principle applies to every movement there is, secular and spiritual. And so, as the centuries passed, true Christianity dies and blurs into what we call Catholicism. In, 13, in 313 AD, Constantine the Great ends the great persecution against the Christians. By 380 AD, Christianity becomes the state religion of the Roman Empire. And then we find division in Catholicism. Now, the word Catholic means universal. But it splits in two groups. We have Eastern Orthodox, and we have West Roman Catholicism. As time goes on, this divide becomes greater and greater. There are what they call five great schisms, but the greatest schism in 1054 was a time where each one of these groups disfellowships the other. In the 1500s comes the Protestant Reformation. Leaders in this movement include Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli. Most prominent was Luther, and we need to thank him for bringing forth two very important concepts. Number one, that the Bible is the sole authority. The church is not the authority. The Bible is the authority. Secondly, he brought forth the principle of what's called the priesthood of all believers. Priests are not to be under the New Testament covenant. Jesus is our high priest. But we as disciples are all priests. We're a royal priesthood. What do priests do? They mediate between man and God. Well, we don't need a man because we have Jesus Christ. So why are we all priests? Because we mediate between a lost world and God. We're to bring a lost world to God. Sadly, the Protestant Reformation just becomes a bunch of different denominations that hold a different conviction in so many different realms, and as a matter of fact, just confuses a lot of people. In 1730 comes what's called the Great Awakening. This is by the Wesley Brothers in England, and it becomes known as Methodism. And we have to thank them for two great things. Number one, they came to a fiction and taught that every individual needs to make their own decision for God. Secondly, they believed in accountability. 
that every single follower of God needed high accountability. Then there came the second great awakening. This is in the late 1700s and on into the 1800s. And this occurs partly in England and partly in the U.S. And the second great awakening was about unifying all the denominations to being Christians and Christians only. And so this movement has also been called the Stone-Campbell movement because the primary leaders were Barton Stone, Alexander Campbell, and his father, Thomas Campbell. It's also called the Christian Connection Movement because they were trying to connect all the different denominations. It's also called the Restoration Movement because they were trying to restore first century Christianity. It's out of this movement, this Restoration Movement, that our roots come. There are three basic groups that come out. Number one is the Mainline Church of Christ. Number two is the Christian churches or the Church of Christ instrumental. That officially becomes known as that in 1906. And then the third group that comes out is Disciples of Christ. This happens in the 1860s, and they fall off that the Bible is the absolute infallible Word of God, and they're swayed by Darwinism and the higher criticism of the Bible that's coming out of Germany. Well, there became a lot more divisions than what we know of as the mainline church of Christ. The greatest division in America was a racial one. Uh, all through the 1900s, there were the black churches of Christ, and they had their fellowship, and they invited each other to speak at their churches. And then there was the white churches of Christ. Sadly, the power and the influence rested in the colleges, not in the church leaders. By the 1950s, all the denominations grew because the soldiers that were sent abroad into Europe and to Asia, they came back and they realized, hey, there's a whole world out there that hasn't embraced Jesus. And so there's an unbelievable turning to God and ascending out of missionaries in all groups, including the churches of Christ. As a matter of fact, in the 1950s, they were called at one point the fastest growing group in America. However, by the 1960s, growth had stopped. And they saw part of the problem. They saw the fact that their young people, when they went to state colleges, would just drift away. They wanted them to go to Christian colleges, primarily so that they could meet a mate, because they did believe you're supposed to marry a Christian. Right. However, The majority, the majority of young people began to leave the church. They didn't sense anything there. And so the Church of Christ looked at another group called Campus Crusade, which was started in the 1950s at UCLA by a man named Bill Bright. And he was having unparalleled success in getting young people to be believers in Jesus and to actually have an enthusiasm for their faith. And so the Church of Christ came together and they formed an experimental work called Campus Advance. There were actually supposed to be two places it was going to happen, Houston and Gainesville. But things happened and there was only one place that Campus Advance went. And that was in Gainesville, Florida at the 14th Street Church of Christ, which was right next to the University of Florida campus. They sent a young man there named Chuck Lucas 
He was 27 at the time. And he just died uh, this past uh, August 9th. He passed away. And, uh, but he came into a small group of mainline Church of Christ kids. And he began to implement what really becomes some not just innovative, but biblical principles that really have given birth to a lot of what we do today. Number one, he institutes the counting of the cost at baptism. At this point in Churches of Christ, you want to be baptized on Sunday morning. There's an invitation song. You just went up to the preacher. You said, I want to be baptized, and you were baptized. No questions asked. Number two, small group evangelism. We called them soul talks in the day. At that time, there were more, you just toss out a scripture and let everybody give their opinion. But in time, they became more directed Bible studies. And then, because of the shepherding concept that was going amongst the churches at that time, he came up with what was called prayer partners. And prayer partners is what it says it is. You went out and you prayed with somebody. And a prayer partner, if you're a guy, could be another guy, but it could be another girl. And you could have as many as you wanted. You could have three, you could have nine, you could have ten. Um, five years after Chuck came, that's when I got baptized in 1972. At that point, the campus ministry there was about 60. And I was just, I, I was so fired up about what I saw. A year later... Elena is brought by her sister, and she gets baptized in 1973. I technically was baptized at the old 14th Street Church of Christ building. We shifted locations, and it became known as the Crossroads Church of Christ when Elena was baptized. And very interestingly, um, all of us had a, had a zeal, and the compelling vision that Chuck gave us was to have campus ministries in every campus in America. That was, our, that was our vision. And so many of us, we came to study different things at college, but after we saw the impact on our lives and we saw what the ministry had done, some of us began to believe that God was calling us to be campus ministers and to go to other campuses and preach the word as it had been preached to us. And of course, you're attracted to other people that have that same kind of zeal and so many young couples met there at the Crossroads Church, married, and then were immediately sent out to the mission field. And of course, that's where Elaine and I were married. Yeah. Now, it's very important that you understand that we were being sent out into existing churches. We were not the lead evangelists. We were just the campus ministers. We often would start out with no students. So what happened? Well, we would preach what's called total commitment. We preached it, but a lot of the lukewarm people in the mainline Church of Christ became very upset at us. I mean, many of them didn't come to midweek. I mean, after Sunday church, many of them would go outside and smoke. That, that's the environment that we came into. And so when we came in with the zeal that everybody had to be committed, it caused quite a disruption. As a matter of fact, we became known as the Crossroads Movement. And there's even a book that was put out by a guy named Robert Nelson called The Crossroads Controversy. And bottom line, not only were we called the Crossroads Movement, but we're also called, as if it was bad, the Total Commitment Movement. And as, as, 
as I saw what was happening, we went to these churches. These churches were just became an uproar. They're, they're, sometimes we're even splits. And then I remembered the scripture in Mark 2, 22. You cannot pour new wine into old wineskins. You got to pour new wine into new wineskins. Amen, church? Amen. Well, my first ministry in 1975, I graduated. The Lord sent me to be a campus minister at a Church of Christ college. Um, and I found that there was no difference between a secular college and a Church of Christ college. But because of the doctrinal indifference at the church, like the preacher didn't even believe you had to be baptized to be saved, I said, you know, a year here is long enough. <laughs> so then the Holy Spirit sent me to Charleston, Illinois. Charleston, Illinois is a very small city in the state of Illinois. It's about four hours driving south of Chicago. It has a population of only 18,000. The campus, Eastern Illinois University, has an enrollment at that time of 9,300. I always add that 300 because it sounded like it was a lot more, you know. <laughs> and it's very interesting because we started preaching and teaching. Elaine actually joined me after three months we were married. And our very first year, the Lord gave us 45 baptisms. And yet at the same time, I got fired, not by the local church, which was the Heritage Chapel Church, but I was supported as a missionary from a church in Houston, Texas, ironically called the Memorial Church of Christ. It was dead, trust, trust me. The elders had come up there. They thought we were Pentecostal. I mean, you know, we, we clapped while we sang. We hummed songs. We even had sisters praying during the devotional. They thought, oh my gosh, this church has gone totally liberal. We gotta fire this guy. So after nine months in the ministry there, I was fired. And I was determined to stay whatever I needed to do. But the Lord had other plans, and, and so I was approached by a church in Memphis, Tennessee, Union Avenue, and they said, Kip, how's this? We will pay for you during the school year up there. We'll take care of your salary. If you'll come down here and work with our church during the summer, and we will pay for your tuition to go to Harding Graduate School. And I go, I don't have to pray about this. This is good. <laughs> And so I had a chance to go to graduate school, and I learned a great deal about the mainline churches of Christ. Um, interestingly enough, after three years, the Lord had blessed Elena and myself with 300 young people baptized. I think a lot of us worry about, I want to say this, I, I think a lot of us as campus ministers were working on two, three campuses, and we're so spread out. Let me tell you something. There's plenty of baptisms to be had at a campus of 9,300. Just focus all your efforts there, and you will get baptisms. Don't divide your focus. Um, it was well known that Elena and I had a dream to be the campus minister at Harvard. And uh, so at the end of 1978, I received a call from the Lexington Church of Christ elders. And it says, hey, Kip, we, we want to talk about it. We heard that you're interested in working on the Harvard campus. It says, we want to tell you about who we are. Number one, uh, we have 60 members, and we're shrinking. And we're a lot like many of the other churches that 
Royal Lemons talked about in his recent Firm Foundation article that over the past 20 years, 5,000 churches of Christ had shut their doors. We're considering that, and in a way, we're, we're turning to you as a last hope. I said, amen? He says, well, there may be some things. We want you to come and interview, but you may not want to come. The first thing is, we've only had two baptisms in the last three years. I go, okay, amen. But this is the bad part. We only have enough money to hire one person. And that would mean you'd have to be the preacher and the campus minister. Well, I had sat for three years under this preacher that preached these lukewarm sermons. And I was going, hallelujah. <laughs> and then it really hit me. Now I have a chance to build a whole church where everybody's totally committed, not just the college students, but we'll have totally committed marrieds, totally committed singles, and totally committed teens alongside a totally committed <laughs> campus group. Well, we went there, we interviewed in November of 78. It was great. We loved the members. We loved Boston. Everything was great. Sunday night, we sit down, and the elders say, hey, you know, uh, Kip and Lena, everybody really wants you to come. How you feel? I said, well, we really want to come, but I, I want to just ask some questions so that, you know, we, we understand what I'm going to do when I come. I said, you know, if I come, I need both of you elders to get behind me in calling every member to come to all the services. At that time, there was a Sunday morning, a Sunday night, and a Wednesday night. I said, but also, every member has to be in a Bible talk. And they go, Kip, Kip, you don't, hmm. If you do that, we'll lose half the membership the first week. Um, I just don't think that's the approach we want to take here. And so we literally, we, we all left sad that night. They called me back on December 31st and says, Kip, you know, we, we interviewed a couple other folks, but we still really like you and Elena. Um, and we were thinking, we were thinking, we, we want to get behind your vision. Maybe we can just kind of ramp up really slowly with the adults and you can go at it with the campus, but let's just go slow with the adults. Then we can get them totally committed. I go, nope, we're preaching the word the very first day. So that phone call was a little sad. Finally, get called again at the end of April. Essentially, they say, Kip, we need you. You and Lena, please come. A month later, we're in a car, traveling on May 31st, my birthday, traveled overnight. We arrive in Boston, June 1st, 1979, and that night, we have the meeting of the 30 disciples in the Gimple's living room. Um, you know, at first, people would have called the Boston or the Lexington Church one of the Crossroads Ministries. But they quickly saw that there was a great deal of difference between what was happening in Boston and what's happening in other Crossroads Ministries. Number one is that we called every single member to total commitment. This was huge. It, it seems unthinkable to you. There was no church in the world that called every single member to total commitment. You walk into it and you just take it for granted. Number two, we, we, we stopped doing prayer partners, guys with girls, girls with guys, go anytime you want business. We went with discipleship partners because we believed that discipling was from God. And we believed the older Christians could help the young Christians. 
Thirdly, I built a study system. We call it first principles. And in first principles, I believed, okay, I wasn't the only one to be teaching people to get baptized. I believed that every single Christian needed to be equipped to be able to teach and baptize other people. And then we would have the multiplication of disciples. Fourthly, I didn't want to send my young guys into existing churches and therefore pour new wine into old wineskins. I wanted to pour new wine into new wine, wineskins, and thus plant new churches. That's why in 1982, the first two churches planted were Chicago and London. Amen? (laughs) Lastly, in 1982, the Lord put upon my heart a plan for world evangelism. I started thinking to myself, I said, well, if disciples remain pure and lukewarmness and sin doesn't come into them, disciples make disciples make disciples. They could evangelize the whole city. You only need one church in one city. As a matter of fact, that's what's in the Bible. One church, one city. That's what I think. Well, if you had one church and they planted a church throughout that nation, you could evangelize that whole nation. You know, if you, if you went to the most influential cities that influence not just their nation, but the nations around them. If you could plant churches in the surrounding nations from this key or pillar church, then you could evangelize the nations in this generation. And that became the vision and the commitment of what then became known as the Boston Movement. The Lord blessed us. The first year, it was, it was, it was incredible. They'd only had two baptisms. In the past three years, God gave us 103 baptisms the first year. The second year, 200. The third year, 252. The fourth year, I was very fired up because got 368. We had more than daily baptisms. By 1988, we're having more than 1,000 baptisms a year. In 1985, sadly, the person that baptized me, Chuck Lucas, resigned from the ministry because of sin and left the ministry. And at that time, Elaine and I were dreaming. I actually was in Hong Kong. Elaine and I were saying, well, where do we go? We go to Tokyo or we go to Hong Kong? Because we really wanted to get out there. And this happened. I got this news right when I was in Hong Kong making that decision. I said, you know something? This is God. I think God wants me to go back to Boston and try to pull in what are these now orphaned campus ministries and try to pull things together. And as a matter of fact, about half of the Crossroads Campus Ministries joined us, and the other half opposed us. Amazingly, from 1985 to 1988, we had about two to 3,000 come out of campus ministries and move into the Boston Church or the Boston Church plantings. And that remnant is very different than the remnant today. The remnant that day, they were 21-year-olds, college graduates, fired up, idealistic, ready to change the world. That's different than our damaged, older, sour, and bitter remnant people. (laughs) But then something really amazing began to happen. I had a call from a brother in Kingston, Jamaica. And he says, Kip, I, we just want to get baptized here. We're just, we're just all lukewarm. We have a little campus ministry. What can you do? And I didn't know what to do, but I, I went on down there with a small group. And in essence, 
I led the discipleship study for the whole congregation. 45 of the people decided they wanted to be disciples. They confessed their sins that night in men's and women's tea groups. We sent five from Boston. I took that minister out and had him retrain in Boston, and I called that a reconstruction. And that next year, they had 115 baptisms. The next year after that, they had 200 baptisms. In other words, now the plantings were having the same impact as the reconstructed churches. Well, when we reconstructed the church in Sandy Springs, basically Atlanta, Georgia, uh, the Crossroads Church where Lynn and I were baptized, they called a meeting with us. And they said, you're counting the cost with people and saying, hey, you're in the church, and you're out church. You can't do that. No man can do that. And so because of that, they called us divisive. And the church that we were birthed disfellowshipped Elena and me and the entire Boston movement. That was 1987. Well, by 1988, we had 17 churches. The brothers came to me and says, Kip, you know, you're discipling everything, and so you're discipling really nothing. And that was true. He says, bro, you just got to go by the scriptures. You know, Moses picked a few. David picked a few. Jesus picked a few. Just pick a few of us, and then we can disciple the rest. Sounded great. After six months of prayer, I came up with world sector leaders. That I chose couples that would oversee a whole sphere of nations. And this is one of the big differences between us and other churches. When we have a minister, he's not just ministering to the church that he leads, but he's given a geographic charge. Those are the people that God has given him to reap a harvest in his vineyard. Amen, guys? Well, when we went to world sector leaders, and therefore I became the leader of the world sector leaders, then the mainline Church of Christ disfellowshipped us. Why? Because they say, oh, you have a central leader. You're like the Pope. We can't have a Pope in our churches. Each church needs to run its own affairs. And so we were disfellowshipped by Crossroads in 87, the mainline Church of Christ in 88. In 89, I passed off the Boston church to one of the brothers. And Elena and I started traveling. We planted churches in Cairo, Bangkok, and Manila. In 1990, we went to Los Angeles. We took over the church that had already been planted there. We took the church when it was 154 members. In 11 years, the Lord blessed us to take it to 10,000 disciples. In 1991, in 1991, I saw it was the time to go to what was then known as the Soviet Union. And so we took a mission team. Elena and I led a mission team of 17. Only two of the people spoke Russian. And it was amazing. I mean, we get there. I mean, every baptism, they had the guys, the soldiers with the machine guns just watching each baptism. But after two months of being there, there's the failed coup. With the failed coup by the hardliners, there then becomes religious freedom. And with religious freedom, our first year, the Lord blessed those 17 with 850 baptisms. And number 100, give or take a couple, was Oleg. By 1994, this was a big year, and you need to understand this. We adopted the name given to us by a church growth expert called John Bunn. He says, you know, you guys aren't the Church of Christ. You actually have a different conversion doctrine. This is a denominational guy. He's not a true Christian. 
But he saw the differences in our fellowships. He says, besides that, you're not just in the Bible Belt. You're equally in the United States and equally around the world. You really are the international churches of Christ. And so I went to the brothers. I said, guys, you know, it's fine. We call ourselves Boston Movement. That's not a very formal name. We've been given two options on our name. We got to choose one today. The first one is cult. The second one is International Church of Christ. Which way do you want to go? They said International Church of Christ. That was the year we wrote the Evangelization Proclamation to get to all cities, all nations with a city of 100,000. And it was also the year that we had our leadership conference in Manila, Philippines, entitled One Generation. I mean, the whole movement believed in the evangelization of the nations in one generation. But unbeknownst to most of the disciples, there was a lot of division at the top because people had come into the movement from all different aspects of the mainline Church of Christ, from all different aspects of the Christian churches. And consequently, they joined us, sensing we were the movement of God, but they joined us because we were a better church. They didn't join us out of pure doctrinal agreement. They said, well, I can, I can overlook some things. I saw that there was division at the top. There was division at the top. And so when we had the leadership meeting in Manila, I wanted to address all the leaders on this issue. And of course, you know, preachers try to be funny. Well, in the States, we have this uh, expression, uh, wine, women, and song, everything that gets you into trouble. That's why I entitled my sermon. And I tried to outline what we now call the five core convictions. And in that sermon, I talked about the fact that we were a Bible church, not just a New Testament church. You see, in the early 1800s, the restoration movement was calling people to be in the New Testament church. Yes, the church is only in the New Testament, granted. But what they meant by that was the Old Testament could not be used for ecclesiastical church decisions. Only the New Testament could. Well, but the Bible teaches different than that. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17 that all Scripture is inspired by God. And when the word Scripture is used in the New Testament, it's talking only about the Old Testament. Secondly, Thomas Campbell, one of the founders, came up with a mode of interpretation. He says what we need to do is we need to speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent. In other words, we need to either have an express command in the Bible or an example, or an inference, or to do something. I taught something almost completely different. I taught, be silent where the Bible speaks. In other words, whatever it says, just obey it and shut up and do it. And then speak where the Bible is silent. In other words, if the Bible doesn't say something, you can do whatever you want as long as it doesn't contradict Scripture. And so we had to attack issues like the wine. There were people that came in from different aspects of Church of Christ that believed that you drank wine or beer, that you were going to go to hell. Others believed they came on in, and I, I had to lay it out. I said, hey, guys, the Bible teaches right here that Jesus drank wine. As a matter of fact, his first miracle was to make the water in the wine, and I understood from the Scriptures it was pretty good wine.
We also had to settle out the issue of wine, women, and song. Um, the mainline Church of Christ was different than the Christian churches because of instrumental music. The Christian churches believed you could use a piano or something in your worship, but the Church of Christ believed that if you had instruments in your worship, you were going to hell. And when I was converted, I took on that conviction. I took on the conviction of autonomy as well. I mean, you just kind of assimilate that conviction. But I started to think then. And so one might even go back and forth. They go, well, why can't we have instruments in the worship? I mean, after all, we have the book of Psalms. And Psalm means literally a song sung with a stringed instrument. But the Church of Christ, we go, no, 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 no. You can't use the Old Testament for New Testament decisions. Then you go, okay. Oh, in the book of Revelation in heaven, you know, we get to play harps. No, 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 bro. That's up in heaven. That's not down here on earth. And there's only one reference to an instrument in all of the scriptures that apply at that point, and that's the reference, casual one, in 1 Corinthians 14. But the only scriptures they would cite is you got to sing with all your heart. I said, well, here's our problem, guys. You know, the Bible doesn't speak against the scriptures. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament argues for it, and the people that came to be Christians in the early days of Christianity were still in the synagogues where they were worshiping with the instrument. We can worship with the instruments. Very interesting. Wine, women, and song. Women. At this point, there were no women in the public part of the worship. Not at all. No welcome, no communion, no nothing. Uh, we started putting women up because the Bible does teach that God is the one that made man and woman, and they were both made in his image. Women are a part of God's makeup. Secondly, we, we understand from the scriptures in Micah 6, 4 that, you know, God placed Moses and Aaron to lead his people and Miriam also. He wanted a female influence on his people. And we understand the church to be a family. I mean, what would our families be without the moms? That gentle touch, that kind word, that, that saving of our children from the fathers. There's a total misconception of the women must be silent. I mean, if the women are to be silent, they can't sing and they can't fellowship. That's not what the scriptures teach. It's a, it's a spirit of calmness. And so we started putting women up to share communion with the man overseeing it, the same way with the welcome. But the controversial thing came with us having women baptize women. And I, I tried to reason with them. I said, you know, we all believe in Matthew chapter 28. And, you know, Jesus says, go, make disciples. We want the sisters to share their faith, right? And study with people, right? So we got to go. Make, we want them to go make disciples of all nations. We want them on mission teams, right? We just don't want the guys on mission teams. Skip the baptism part for a second. And then it says you got to teach them to obey everything that was taught you. We want the women to disciple the women. I mean, Titus 2 does teach that. 
But the only thing you're not willing to do is to have the women baptize the women. I said, you know, so let me reason with you this. I think it's better that the women baptize the women. Number one, we, we all get a little bit attached to the person that baptizes us. And it can cause some weird things for a man to baptize a woman. There can be an unnecessary bond that's there. Secondly, very often, you know, when people get baptized, you got to push their legs down or something in order to make sure they go all the way under. And it's just not good for any brother to be touching a woman. You know what I'm talking about? I said, I, I argue that's even better for the women to baptize the women. And secondly, the scriptures don't prohibit it. It don't not prohibit it. Well, I laid it out, the other three convictions. We need a central leader with a central leadership. Of course, Numbers chapter 27, 15 through 18. And we understand that central leadership is needed not just to give people direction, but also unity. Amen? We understand that the smallest unit God made is marriage or the family. And in marriage and the family, there's a central leader. Not always the smartest one in the group, but he's the one that's been given authority. Why? Well, you got to have direction, but also unity. If you have children and you want the whole family to go out and have a special evening together, and you ask your wife or your two children, hey, where do you want to go to eat? And one may say McDonald's, one may say Jollibee's, one may say, well, stay at home. Well, if everybody was autonomous and did their own thing, the family wouldn't be together. And so the husband, the central leader, makes the decision. Guys, we're staying at home tonight, and the family's united. Amen? Are you with me right here? The same thing is true with our family of churches. We come together, and we enjoy family so much, do we not? And isn't it great to be with one another from such distant places? But that's only possible if we're brought together by a central leadership, giving us direction, but also providing us authority for unity. Are you with me here? Fourthly, discipling is the command of God. Jesus says after baptism, you've got to teach them to obey. That's discipling. You've got to obey the word of God. And finally, the evangelization of nations in this generation, that's all the way through the scriptures. Certainly go to all nations. And he's talking to the apostles right there, whom he also addresses in Matthew 24. And he says, hey, when the end comes, which is the downfall of Jerusalem, this gospel will be preached to all nations, and all prophecies of Jesus come true. But I think the best scripture I like is in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. It teaches that God, our Savior, wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And so, you just ask the person, what's the scripture teach? It's God's will for all men to be saved. So the question is, is God's will your will? Well, yes, God's will is your will. Well, now you want all men to be saved. You now have the dream of the evangelization of the nations in this generation. Are you with me here? Well, getting back to all that began to happen, we find the Crete letter comes out in 2003, the fall of the churches. Many people fall away. Elaine and I go to Portland. It becomes the fastest growing church in the movement. And yet, in 2005, the Lord puts upon my heart, you know, we tried to reform what was left of the International Church of Christ. That's why we went there, was to figure out what we did right, what we did wrong, was to pull everybody together, but they still want to be autonomous. There's only one way to pull out what's left of the ICOC. 
That's the call out the remnant. Only those people that want to evangelize the nations and be disciples. When I did that, a month later, a letter came out from, quote, the brothers to me. And it was signed by 65 evangelists and elders. And in essence, they're saying, hey, what Kip is teaching is wrong. He's guiding in the wrong way. And they had 65 signatures. Why? They were trying to inadvertently say, hey, can 65 of us be wrong and one guy be right? Well, we write a response back from Portland. And we confront the lukewarmness. We say we're not causing division whatsoever. People are moving to Portland because the Holy Spirit is guiding us here. And little groups are forming because they just can't be a part of the lukewarmness that's out there. Well, there's another letter that comes out with 85 evangelists and elders disfellowshipping me. But we go on. By 2006, a young man comes to the Portland Jubilee. His name's Kyle Bethamuel. He just had become the preacher in Hilo, Hawaii. He comes, he goes, wow, this, this must be what all the old people are talking about. This is incredible. I've never seen such a fellowship. This is on fire, the baptisms. Kip, would, would, would you disciple me? I said, well, let me ask a few questions here, come. You do understand I'm controversial. I said, that's no problem with me. I said, well, it might be a problem with your church. Oh, no, bro. No problem. I said, well, okay, well, tell me about the church. Well, Hilo Church got up to about 60. We have about 40 members, about 40 people on Sunday morning come. I said, let me tell you this. How many people do you have at midweek? 12. I said, Kyle, that's your church. He said, well, would you come on over and preach and help us build the foundation? Sure. Next month we come. We preach. At that point, a man named John Causey sends in a group of evangelists and shepherds to oppose us. Praise God. John repents, and he joins the movement last year. Amen. When these people came on in to oppose us on Sunday morning, there were only 12 disciples left. They had pulled another group aside, and they called themselves the Unity Church. The Unity Church, in all the years that existed, now it's gone back into the mainline Church Christ. They never had a baptism. The 12 that remained with Kyle, they hadn't had a baptism for two years when Kyle took over. In the next year, God gave them 20 baptisms. That's what happens when you have a sold out base. However, when that happened, I go back to Portland. Brothers like Michael say, bro, now they're actively opposing us. There's no remedy. You have to start again. I put out a series of articles entitled Partners in the Gospel and say God has started a new movement. It officially is given birth in 2007 with the planting of the City of Angels Church by the 42 sold-out disciples from Portland, Oregon that, praise God, as of today, 11 years later, have been multiplied into 7,000 disciples in 97 churches in 36 nations on all six populated continents of the world. Mark these words. This is not a movement of men. This is the very movement of God.
Our last point, God measures our treasure. We find in the book of Ezra that the foundation is laid in the second year for the temple. And in chapter 5, after a work stoppage of about 14 years, we read these words in verse 1. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Edo, prophesied to the Jews and Judah in Jerusalem in the name of the Lord who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Jehoshadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. So we now understand that the two prophets that really got the work going were Zechariah and Haggai. Haggai, Jewish tradition holds, was about 90 years old. He had seen the old temple and the beauty of it. Zechariah was a young guy, a young prophet, about 18 years old. And so now we understand that Haggai begins to prophesy. So it's still the year 520 B.C. Now the temple gets rebuilt in 516. But we go to the book of Haggai now, and we come to understand what was in the heart of God. Haggai dies before he sees the temple built. It's Zechariah that propels it to its completion. But these are the key words by, quote, the old prophet. In chapter 2, in verse 1, it says, On the 25th day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw the house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? So the old prophet is saying, hey, guys, you who saw the old temple, look at this one. Does it not seem to you like nothing? See, the old temple, David basically had gold on the inside, gold on the outside. People have estimated it to be worth four to eight billion dollars. This temple was built by the remnant out of the charred stones. And so it was an ugly temple. <laughs> That's why I asked, does it not seem to you like nothing? You know, sometimes people, particularly in the ICSC, look at us and say, oh, guys, you guys are only 7,000. Does it not seem to you like nothing? Let's read on. The admonition, verse 4. But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I coveted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit is among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver's mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. Amen. So right here, there's this charred temple. And the Lord says, listen, I have all the gold and silver in the world. If, if I want to, I could give that to you, but I don't want to. Here's my plan. I'm going to shake the desire of nations. It's kind of like God takes the globe and he shakes out the desire of the nations. Who are the desire of nations? All those people who love the Lord. He shakes them out and he says, I'm going to fill my house 
with glory. What is the glory of the Lord? Sold out followers of God. And so the prophecy at the end is very interesting. He says the glory of the present house, seemingly this ugly temple, will be far greater than the glory of the former house, this baptized in gold temple. And so when the people of that day heard this prophecy, they understood that the glory of the present temple, this remnant temple, was the fact that now the hearts of the people are fully with God. Not like the olden days when the people had drifted away from God, even though they had a beautiful temple. When the first century came and they read the scripture, they understood at another level. The former house would have represented Judaism, the Jews. The present house would have been the Christians. And though the Christians were few, they were the glory of the Lord in the first century. Are you with me right here? Now today, for us, we look back at past movements. We look back at the ICOC, and we see all the great things they did. We don't want to take anything away from God. But we saw how far their hearts drifted from God. And as much as they did in reaching 171 nations, as great as that was, their hearts drifted. And even though we're small at this time, the glory of the present house, God's new movement, is going to be greater than even the glory of the ICOC. Some say, well, what's different? Well, maybe the first question is, what's the same? Our doctrine is exactly the same as it was when we built the ICOC. And they try to say, well... You guys, you, you've split. No, 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 no. We're not the ones that divided. You guys divided. You're the ones that changed. How much did they change? Almost every church changed from being, say, the Boston International Church of Christ to become the Boston Church of Christ. You had to pay money to change your name. It was very purposeful. They wanted to be identified as a mainline Church of Christ theologically. Well, what is different? I believe the main thing that's different is the hearts of the people. Yeah. When, when, when we have remnant people come to our church for the first time, they almost always say, wow, this is the church I was baptized in. And you know something? They're right. Yeah. But the hearts are sold out. Yeah. Secondly, the unity of our church is different than the unity of the ICOC. Most of the people joined because we were a better church. Now we're united by life and doctrine. We all believe in the five core convictions. Amen. Thirdly, we understood and the old movement understood the parallel of building a Jesus movement by having the world sector leaders be parallel to the apostles. In the new movement, we've understood another piece, and that's in Luke 10. Jesus had not only the 70 apostles, the 12 apostles, but he had the 70. And we too had the 70. It's called the Crown of Thorns Council. That permeation of Jesus' teaching is much stronger than any one apostle could have. And so it keeps the whole movement unified. Secondly, it was Jesus' sign. As the 12 were selected to be the signal of a new kingdom, 
the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes, now the 12 apostles. The 70 were parallel to the 70 nations listed in Genesis 10 and 11, which represented the whole world. And so this second group of apostles was making a statement. He's saying, this 70 means we're going to every single nation. That was the signal that Jesus was giving, but he also was building a unified movement. We need to understand that God has moved in incredible ways. 2007 starts L.A. 2008, he starts Mercy Worldside. 2009, the crown of thorns is initiated. Amazingly, 2017, phase one is completed. Where are we at right now? Well, we're trying to focus on campus ministry. Why? Well, the first movement was actually built off a campus ministry that ran from 1967 to 85. Two to 3,000 young people came into the movement and just exploded it. Now, we, we, we have a different kind of remnant, and granted, some of us look more like charred stones than the beautiful <laughs> gold that was there in the first one. But nonetheless, we've got to now go to the young people so once more there can be an explosion. And so what I put before you is the same thing that Haggai put before the people of that day. Oh, there, there were incredible things that happened in the ICOC. Yeah. But you know something? It's nothing like the heart and the unity and the vision as we have in God's sold-out movement. And to God be all the glory. Thank you. Wow. Let's give a round of applause for that incredible, incredible presentation. <laughs> to be able to watch your father in the faith deliver that again and again. I, I, I mean, I could be here all day just listening to what God has done. Being a part of what God is doing all around the world. Literally changing the world, changing history. Just an incredible, incredible moment for those of you that are, that are here to realize what God has really done and what he's going to do. I think about where we're going to be in the next, the next one year, the next two years. Um, I remember so many memories that come back to me. I remember weeks after Henry Crete wrote his letter confronting him in London. This is before I even knew Kip and Elena and asking him why he wrote that letter and he was just silent on it. I had no idea that God was having the new young crazy prophet confront the old fallen prophet. And that was orchestrated by God and I didn't even know Kip at the time. Um, it was just so incredible seeing the hand of God weave his, just powerful. Um, Kip, thank you again for an incredible, incredible presentation of our history, guys. We would like to thank you for listening to that episode of the podcast. If you would like video versions of these episodes, whether it's sermon highlights or interviews, feel free to check us out on our website or view them on our YouTube channel. 
That's londonchurch.org.uk. That's L-O-N-D-O-N-C-H-U-R-C-H.org.uk. And for all other updates and information, whether it's services, events, or devotionals, you can find all that on our website also. Once again, we'd like to thank you for listening, and we'll catch you on the next one.